0: So this is recording now, and good morning, welcome back. Uh, Just a reminder to log in with your devices to the iClicker session. So we'll be doing a bunch of iClicker questions today. Um, And just, just to remind you, you'll see that I take attendance all the time, but that is not for your mark. What you'll be marked on is simply if you answer the questions, if you participate in the questions, and they don't have to be the right answers, and as long as you do 80% of the questions throughout the whole course, you'll get your 5% participation mark. The attendance I'm doing, because obviously, you know, sometimes there's a malfunction with your phone or computer and, or you don't get the answer in fast enough, but that way at least I can see that you were here in class, uh, at least attempting to participate, so that will, will assist. Okay, so let's um, get started then. Last lecture was a pretty uh, long lecture where we started getting into chemistry. We're going to continue today a little bit with chemistry, and because the lecture that I did last time, it kind of, it it was a lot of um, definitions and a lot of material packed in really, really quickly. I'm going to do a review of a lot of the stuff that we talked about last lecture, a lot of the definitions that we had for chemistry terms, and then I'm going to move on with, with just a little bit of new material today, not too much, so it will be a nice short Friday class, hopefully. So we'll just do a review of molecules and chemical bonds. We talked as well about the types of chemical bonds. The three types that we are really thinking so the two types that we are really considering in this course are covalent bonds and ionic bonds. There are other kinds of bonds. the third specifically that we have missing that we don't really talk about in this course are metallic bonds which behave completely differently than covalent and ionic bonds, and for us to really understand color, they're not too important, so we're not going to get into that and and uh, sort of move forward with the chemistry of that. So we also talked about, in addition to how molecules are put together in the types of bonds, how molecules can change their internal energy states. We talked about three ways in which they can do that, being sort of electronic transitions, vibrational transitions, and rotational transitions. So we'll just review those quickly. And uh, then we'll get into the chemistry of pigments. So pigments are the molecules or the particles that give something its color. Um, Pigment particles, you'll often see powdered pigment substances. In painting, you mix these powdered substances with some kind of binding agent. Uh, A lot of the time in the Middle Ages and up to the Renaissance throughout, sort of with the great master painters, they'd use egg yolk to bind these particles together in paints. We have different ways of doing it now, so we'll talk a little bit about that, but mainly give a definition of what I mean by pigment, what types of pigment we see, and what the characteristics of each of those types of pigments Before we get into that, uh, I'd like to invite Ikra up for a second to talk about um, Facebook group that she set up and also study sessions. So your class reps have been really working hard, and uh, I'll hand it over to you.
1: Um, Hi everyone. I'm Ikra. For those of you who weren't there last class, I'm one of your class reps. Uh, I've set up a Facebook group, so as you can see, it's NATS 1870N Winter to 2018. You guys can join it. It's a closed group, so I will um, allow your invitation whenever you send it. Um, Also, to help with your assignments, since the due date has been pushed to Monday, I think February 5th, uh, we have two new study sessions. One is today um, from 11.30 to 1 o'clock in study room P. And one's on Monday from 12.30 to 2 at Study Room R. So either BJ or I will be present at one of the study sessions if possible. You guys can drop in, have a discussion about the assignment. Uh, It's to help you out. And thank you. Good luck on the assignment.
0: Great. Okay. So thank you, let's see if I get this properly, okay great, thank you Ikra. Um, just to remind you as well, your class representatives, this is a volunteer position, they're, um, uh, I think there may have been some confusion with some of you, uh, your class reps are students in the class, they are not your TAs. Um, just so if, if you're wondering if they're going to like help you, can have a, a you know, better grasp of the material, not necessarily their students, your peers in the class, and they're there to talk through things. Um, with respect to the face group, Facebook group, um, that is a group for you as students to discuss any issues you may be having. Um, I am aware of it, but I am not on it, so I will not be monitoring uh, everything that you say and think, oh no, that's terrible. I will. Um, I'm staying out of that, but that's for you to discuss or clarify any misunderstandings and speak in a candid manner about what it is you may be unclear on. So do attend the uh, study sessions. I'm sure that those will be extremely helpful. Also, uh, I know that some of you have asked for appointments and I will be seeing um, sort of a bunch of people after class. I'll be heading back over to my office area which is 1050 um, Daley building which used to be TEL. So you are welcome to also, if you had a, a last minute question, sort of head over there. Okay, so let's get started then on the review. Um, one last thing about the assignment to remind you, it's due on Monday. It's due, the Moodle submission stops at 11.59 p.m. Monday night. So you have until midnight. So please do try and get it in and hopefully a little bit before midnight because there's usually a deluge at that time of people trying to submit. Okay, so the first thing we're going to start with today is uh, an iClicker question. And this is an easy one to get us warmed up in the morning. This hopefully should be a very easy question. Um, All right. Let me start this. So select the best definition for a molecule from the list. Is it the smallest unit of matter? The smallest unit of elemental matter? combination of any two or more atoms, a combination of the same type of two or more atoms, or a combination of different types of two or more atoms. So typically, when you see… this this would be a very… it's very easy, uh, it's meant to be easy, but this would be a kind of a question that you'll see a lot of the time. Notice I have the best definition underlined. In your midterm exam, which is on February twenty-eight, um, please pay attention. Read the multiple choice really, really carefully. I'll be posting a review and also a link of strategies on how to answer multiple choice questions in the best way possible. But things like wording like this, the best definition, implies that some of the definitions may be true, but what is the very best definition of how you would encapsulate this? term of a molecule. Okay. So I'll let it go a few more seconds. So I'll close this off now. And uh, you're right, it is C, a combination of any two or more atoms. We talked last time about diatomic hydrogen, diatomic elements, diatomic nitrogen, hydrogen, etc., and it is true that molecule could be a combination of two of the same types of atoms, but that is not the entire definition. Moving on then, hopefully this slide looks familiar to you from last time. We were talking about the chemistry of surface colors, and after getting through sort of the basic physics of light and all of that, we're finally getting to the chemistry of surface color and what gives something its perceived hue in reality. So what causes that really has a lot to do with changes of the internal constituents of whatever the piece of matter is. So really there's the kind of types of bonds that keep it together, and how the energy is changing. So in order of looking at molecules, everything is composed of molecules and they have different types of ways in which they can bond. Uh, Depending on the molecule, you can have a relatively simple one, you can have very complex one. They all uh, bond in different ways. And then they also possess this idea of energy states Remember, we've talked a lot about, especially when we talked about photons, we talked about how photons change the energy of an electron in an atom. It changes the whole atomic energy, gaining or losing a photon. This is true, but this is only one kind of energy state that a molecule or collection of atoms can have. It is the electronic energy state. And there are other ways of how a molecule can change energy and change potentials, and that involves how it's connected, if you think three-dimensionally, and sort of how it can bounce around, how it can rotate, and uh, we'll go into this in a second. So why is this all important for understanding color? Well, once you understand all of this, you will understand the applications and the colorant process. Today we're going to talk about pigments, and next time we're going to talk about paints and dyes, including what the difference between those two things are. And, um, okay, so let's see, what else? No? It's because of the eye clicker. All right. So next question, then. I've mentioned the bonds... We haven't yet reviewed which kind of bond is which, but let's start off seeing if you remember with this question. So we can tell whether a molecule is a pure covalent or polar covalent bond by the difference in something of its constituent element. Is it the difference in colors, difference in photosensitivities, the difference in electron numbers, uh, the difference in electronegativity, or the inertia? I'm going to give it a few more seconds so please get your answers in, if you haven't done so already. Okay. And the answer is, is with this electronegativities. So electronegativity was a really important concept that we discussed last time, where the electronegativity of um, an atom or a molecule gives you a measure of its bonding power. Basically how much it wants to attract electrons toward it. How much it wants to attract the negativity, so it's electronegativity, because electrons carry negative charges. All right, so we're going to talk about uh, electronegativity in a moment, but to jog your memory a little bit. We also talked about the change in electronegativity between elements, and we used a certain symbol to describe um, numerically what that change is. Do you remember what the symbol was? So was it this sort of little delta? This is a small delta. Was it uh, delta E n? Sort of a partial derivative thing, rho. E x p or ch e minus change in electrons, maybe. What, What do you think it was? So I think most of them are in. I'm going to stop this now. And again, most of you are right. It was this delta EN. So delta, this this triangle, means change in, and EN stands for electronegativity. It's just important to remember, because you may see a question asking you about that kind of thing. So why is, okay, so we're going to go, we're going to have a couple more questions, well, one more question actually, before we get to the review of each of these things. So a something bond is one in which electrons are shared, whereas a something bond is one in which electrons are gained by one atom and lost by another. See if you can remember, recall which was which. So is it ionic covalent, covalent ionic, electronegative catalytic, catalytic ionic, or simple and complex? Everybody has their answers in. Looks like it. And the answer for this one is again—it's um, correct. Most of you are correct. It's B. A covalent bond is the one in which electrons are shared, whereas the ionic bond is one in which electron is taken away, or um, sort of is given or it, taken or lost. Uh, it's easy to remember. I find it easy to remember the covalent bond one. You can think of, because these are relationships between atoms, think of a codependent relationship. It's like you're really stuck together. So that's a covalent bond, codependent relationship. Uh, easy, easy remembering tool there. And here's, you can, you know, of course there's a lot of really surfing the internet. You can find a lot of very cute memes and little illustrations of atomic bonds, but the easy way to remember this again is the covalent bond is when you share the electron. Remember that you have the nucleus and you have the electrons in reality orbiting about the nucleus in kind of a diffuse cloud with probabilities of being certain points at certain times. For our purposes, we are going to talk about this like a planetary system with the electrons having set orbits, and a covalent bond is when the orbit of the valence or outer electrons of any two atoms are shared. So the electron is shared here. For the uh, ionic, I couldn't resist putting uh, James' ionic bond up. uh, He says taken, not shared. So ionic bond, exchange, the atoms are naturally connected, sharing the electron, but one is taken and one is uh, sort of adopted. Okay, an example of covalent bonding, we did talk about all of those diatomic molecules, so H2O2, hydrogen, oxygen, those would be covalent bonds, simple covalent bonds, ionic bonds The classic example of an ionic bond is table salts, so NaCl, sodium chloride. Here's another sort of cute illustration um, of bonding. This is a metallic bond, and we're not going to talk about that in depth in the course, but the idea behind the illustration and what actually happens in metallic bonds is quite different than what happens in covalent and ionic. In metals, the electrons have the ability to sort of move around more. So you have a collection essentially, that nucleus of your metallic atom is like an ion, a cation, ion, a positive ion that shares groups of electrons between all of the other positive ions in the metal. So you get a flow of electrons moving around, not defining who owns which but it is a flow of electrons, and that is what you get when you have current, for example. Moving electrons produces electrical current in something, and you know that metals are good conductors. Just think about a pot when you pick it up, if it is on the stove, if you had a metal pot or a metal mug, it would be extremely hot. That is because the electrons have the ability to flow and move around more easily in metals. And for our purposes, when we talk about color, you'll see today that color really—the bonds that give us color—are largely covalent bonds. Here's a uh, an example of the three types of chemical bonds. So we have our two types of chemical bonds: we have covalent and ionic. Furthermore, those covalent were separated out into two more types of bond. Pure covalent, or um, non-polar covalent. If you just use non-polar covalent, you can actually call it pure covalent. When you see that, it's the same thing we're talking about. And a polar covalent bond, and an ionic bond. The key between this polarization, the polar, versus the pure, is that when you have this molecule, you can think of it as existing in space. A pure or non-covalent bond is when the charges are equally distributed across the at the molecule itself. So this is considered a pure covalent bond, and the electrons are shared evenly. They're shared equally in this kind of a bond, whereas In a polar covalent bond, the electrons aren't shared equally. And what happens as a result of that is on one side of the molecule, you get a net sort of slight difference in in charges between different areas in the molecule. So for instance, here you have a net sort of positive charge on this end, and here you'd have a net negative charge on this end. So the molecule is said to be polarized or has a difference in charges across it. And finally, ionic bonds, again, one grabs an electron from the other one, one loses it, but they are still bonded together, not physically sharing electrons, but one has taken, one has given. In terms of these two bonds, the covalent bonds, pure and the, um, the then the polar, remember that if we have these kinds of things, with the sharing of that valence electron, or valence electrons, there's different ways you can share those orbits, and that gets into the type of bond that we have. So in a covalent bond, If you're sharing your outermost electron, just sharing one of them, and basically your orbits, think of it as orbits intersecting, that's considered to be a single bond. You can also have double bonds, where you share sort of two orbits, and triple bonds, and so forth. So those are important to remember because that all goes to the structure of the molecule and how it will interact and behave when you're trying to use it as a colorant in, for instance, the dyeing process. So uh, most colorants that we use, most pigments that we use, are double covalent bonds, you'll see why later. So as I've just said, the covalent bonds split into the pure covalent and the polar covalent, whereas the ionic bonds are sort of just on their own. And how do we know the difference? I mean, you probably will have seen chemistry tests or had a chemistry test where they'll just give you a molecule, a molecular formula, and say, what kind of bond is this? Well, how do we know, aside from memorizing it? We know by looking at the periodic table and checking the differences in electronegativity, so delta En, the change of electronegativity between those two constituent or two or more constituent atoms that create the molecule. Here's an example. So this, these are covalent bonds. It's an example of single, double, and triple covalent bonds. At the very top you can see a single covalent bond, which should be a relatively familiar uh, molecule. It's CH4, it's methane. And remember that hydrogens and carbons, hydrogens and carbons, when you see a whole collection of hydrogen and carbons, that's just uh, a sign that it's an organic molecule. We have um, double covalent bonds where the carbons in the center are joined sharing two electrons. And we have example of a triple covalent bond where the carbons in this case share three electrons. And as I've said, these, these ones, double covalent bonds, tend to be most common in colorants, in paints, in pigments, in dyes. To remind you of electronegativity, we had this slide last time, just explaining what electronegativity is, which if you remember, it is the bonding power. A measure of the bonding power so something that is, has a greater or higher electronegativity value wants to attract electrons toward it more. Something that's going to have a small or lower electronegativity value is not interested in, electri- in, interested in ele- attracting any electrons. And the relation is this, the value of your change in electronegativity between the atoms in the molecule tells you by the number which kind of bond it is. So on a scale of increasing electronegativity, to the right, at zero, because you think about it, remember this is change in electronegativity, so if you had say a hydrogen and a hydrogen, they are both hydrogen, they are going to have the same electronegativity. It's going to be like 2.44 minus 2.44 equals zero. So that's zero. That's going to be your pure covalent bond. A polar covalent bond is kind of in the middle of this sliding scale, which goes up to 3.3. Highest electronegativity values four. And an ionic bond is when you get into these higher energies. Uh, It's not too important to memorize the the breakpoints at which these things happen because there's a lot of differing research. The numbers can differ, but those are the guidelines. And Just to show you how the numbers do differ, um, an example here, this is the scale of difference in electronegativity, as in the previous slide with the arrow going from 0 up to 3.3. Typically a non-polar covalent bond will be at 0. Then after 0.4, the delta En is 0.4, then you have polar covalent bonding. And after your change in electronegativity is 1.7 or greater than 1.7, you have ionic bond. So continuing with our review by question, Give me an example of these two types of bonds. So an example of a pure covalent bond is X, whereas an example of a polar covalent bond is Y. Is it diatomic hydrogen, which is H with the subscript 2, and water? Uh, Yellow diamond or blue diamond, water or diatomic hydrogen, blue diamond, yellow diamond, or this sort of formula denoting two electrons, three protons, and a neutron. I think we've got almost everybody, so I'm going to stop it. And the example of the pure covalent bonds, the answer for this one is A. Diatomic hydrogen was one of the ones I showed earlier, that's a pure covalent bond, difference in electronegativity zero. And water is polar, because sort of the edges of the water molecule are a little more positive, that's where the two hydrogens are a little more positive than the middle of the water molecule, which is more negative. Good. So here's a fun list for a Friday morning, but we talked last time a little bit about the 15 causes of color. I am not expecting you to memorize this list or regurgitate to me the 15 causes of color, just bringing it up there as a reminder. Um, I will direct you again to the article by Kurt Nassau, who is a chemist, um, who basically really ha- made all the contributions to, many contributions to color science and gave us this list of the 15 different causes of color The important thing to remember about this is all of it can be, these are physical causes of color, not emotional or psychological causes, and most of it has to do with light, how light changes, how light interacts, how light moves around with surfaces. So here's the 15 list broken down into five groups. Last time we said that these three in the middle you can actually think of it as three main causes of color. One would be vibrations and excitations. A second one would be transitions. And a third one would be geometrical and physical optics. So we're not going deeply into the transitions element, just a little bit. We're reviewing right now the basic concepts that you need to move on to an understanding of how this works in color. So very simply, what actually causes color, we've talked about this already, and that is basically how the molecules are put together, which is why I keep emphasizing the different types of bonds, because that will tell you a number of things about the color that you have produced. If you have dyeing, for instance, and you have a fabric and a certain kind of pigment the number, strength, and type of those bonds can tell you all kinds of things. Is your dye likely to take? Um, what will the effect be if light shines on it? Is it going to fade with time? Is it permanent? So all of this comes from the chemical elements of this. So how molecules are put together is chemical bonding, which we just reviewed. And then how the energy states can change is in those three ways, electronic, vibrational, and rotational. I've put this diagram on here because it's a nice uh, picture which relates a lot that we've talked about so far. So you'll see on the horizontal axis of this picture, you've got a red and blue bar. That's just indicating the temperature. So if you remember when we talked about electronic, vibrational, and rotational energy states, each one of those kind of occurred essentially at a certain temperature. It took a certain amount of energy to cause a change in each of those states. So it takes, as you can see, the red is very, very hot, going up to 6,000 degrees Kelvin, and the blue here is is ultra, ultra cold, going down to 200 nanokelvin. We are dealing, oh, oh, okay, we are dealing with these three effects, and these three effects happen at different energies. So this binding energy is denoting the electronic energy state of a molecule, and that takes the most energy to change that, which is the gaining and the losing of electrons. Followed by a vibration, it takes the second most amount of energy to change the vibration or the shaking around of atoms and molecules. And the third way, rotation, it takes the least energy to change a rotational uh, energy state of a molecule, where a molecule is kind of rotating about its axis of symmetry. These we're not going to do. These are ultra-cold atom physics, um, sort of more complicated areas of quantum physics that we won't get into, but just like light and just like temperatures with color, sort of coordinations, know that energy states of atoms have a full sort of spectrum of behaviors with a number of different things happening. So that brings us back then to our review of molecules. We have our types of bond, we have our combination of bond, and recall that in the combinations of bonds, how they go together. When we're talking about covalent bonds, we can talk about single or double covalent bonds, which leads us to something called conjugated bonds, which we talked about last time, which are just more complex bonds. For instance, um, a conjugated bond would be something like beta-carotene, organic uh, molecule which you find that gives you the color in carrots, really bright sort of orange and also gives you the color of fall leaves. And it's a series of single and double covalent bonds strung together. That's what a conjugated bond is, a complex uh, series sort of, of covalent bonds. There's another type of molecule um, basically called a porphyrin. And a porphyrin, number of porphyrins are responsible for color of objects as well. Uh, I used the leaf example, talking about a beta-carotene conjugated bond. Well, basically, the molecule that gives plants their nice green color is chlorophyll, and chlorophyll is a porphyrin. And a porphyrin is really just a series of organic, like, uh, rings of carbon molecules um, connected together with a molecule in the center to stabilize it, and sometimes a hydrocarbon tip. And of course, we know about energy states now. So another question today. This is the part of a molecule that gives it a visual color. So is it, what's responsible, what is, or the name of the, the color containing area of a molecule? Is it is it in the electrons, the protons, is it quarks, pigmentosia, or chromophores? But he's pretty much clocked in. Okay, I'm going to stop this now. So the answer for this one is actually... Figmento, just sounds like a good guess. But it's actually a chromophore. So we did talk about chromophores last time, and I apologize, I had a typo in the slides. I put um, chromophores, chroma, chroma is color. I will correct that in the slides, but it's not chromophores, it's chromaphores. Chroma being color. So a, a chromophore is just the area the, in a molecule that is um, responsible for its color. And we'll talk about the chromophores of different substances a little later on. So we did have this, this slide last time, unfortunately, with the typo, but the chromophore is just the part of the molecule that's responsible for the color, because really what's happening when you see the color is a certain... Um, type or wavelength of photon is being absorbed by the surface area, and then the photons that are not absorbed basically give us the color that we see with our eye. So there's different causes of color. You can say a chromophore is the color-containing part, but each cause is unique and slightly different, which is a cause of the physics, the chemistry and the molecular structure. So anytime you see something changing color, like if you have bananas changing from green to yellow as they ripen, or you see food rotting and it turns kind of white or well that's mold, but if you, you know you see something changing color, you can be pretty sure that a chemical change at the molecular level is happening. This is, this is what's important for us to recall. This, just bringing this up to review. I think we've talked about this enough. Free energy states of molecules, electronic, which is gaining, losing electrons, vibrational, shaking, motion, and rotational, rotating about a symmetric axis. So let's talk about each of these states a little bit. Um, the electronic energy states was everything we talked about previous in previous lectures in the course. We talked about of uh, protons being absorbed or emitted, that was electrons gaining or losing energy, electrons sort of jumping between atoms, that is the electronic state. And an example of how these things manifest color in nature, the electronic state of the atomic, of the sorry, molecular energy, a lot of this you can see in gemstones, like diamonds for example. Diamonds, with the addition of some impurities, reflect the light slightly differently. So they absorb a number of wavelengths. And you can see that a diamond, a blue diamond, for example, would absorb all of the wavelengths of visible light except the blue. So the blue is coming to your eye, and that's why it, it looks to be a blue diamond. Last point about electronic energy states of molecules is that it takes the most energy to change them. So this is the hardest one essentially to change. Highest energy photons to change. So next we have um, vibrational energy states and you can remember this, I like to think of it as a string and a spring and often in labs or maybe you will even have constructed those sort of styrofoam molecule models where you have the balls and you have springs connecting them sometimes, or a rod. But essentially you can think of the forces between the atoms in the molecules as springy. So there is different strengths and there's different amount of friction and attraction between them. When you change sort of the stretching or the compressing of these spring-like attraction forces, you have a change in vibrational energy of the molecule and this is a little easier to do than going ahead and changing completely the electronic state of the molecule which involves electrons moving. So in terms of this, there is less energy input to cause a vibrational energy state change in a molecule. So less energy, if you remember your wavelengths, less energy corresponds to longer wavelengths. So you can change vibrational energy of a molecule essentially by shooting longer energy wavelength photons at it. I want to show you for a second uh, an example of what these vibrational states may look like. So I didn't get to show you this last time. I did give you a site previously, but this one is a little bit better. This has an animation of... um, it has three particular vibrational states. It's more like six, but three for for our purposes, three vibrational states of water molecules. Let's take a look at that very briefly. And this is a really good... Um, site on water and water structure, water science, and everything you wanted to know about water. Here for example, oh, it only does it winter. okay. So here are water vibration modes. And the three ones that we're concerned about, the three main ones are these on the top row. So one type of vibration mode is like a symmetric stretch. It's an oxygen in the middle and the hydrogen are on either sides. You can think of it as the hydrogens either pulling away from or coming closer to the oxygen. Another one is an asymmetric stretch where they're kind of coming and going closer to the oxygen at different rates at different times. And then you have like a bend where these sort of flaps of hydrogen are either moving up. So it's it's a nice way to be able to see this, to visualize what we're talking about when we're talking about changing actual vibration of molecules. Okay, so take a look at this site when you get a chance, it's interesting. Um, but this is the main key. Okay. That was vibrational. Uh, the last bit of the review for today, uh, last couple of bits, So the last and third and final stage is rotational uh, energy change in molecules. This is just when you have a molecule in the water molecule, you saw that it's polarized. It almost looks like upside-down Mickey Mouse ears in that previous slide. But all molecules will have a certain central axis and the rotational energy happens when the molecules rotate about that axis of symmetry. Now, this is the easiest form of change to induce in molecules, and there are even lower energy levels involved with changing it, meaning even longer, longer, longer wavelengths. So we have photons of extremely low uh, energy, long wavelengths, and if you remember with our photons, at one end of the electromagnetic spectrum we have really long wavelengths like radio waves. At the other end, we have really high wavelengths. In the middle, in an infinitesimally small almost region, is the spectrum of visible light that we see from about 400 to 700 nanometers. So if you are going to change these energy states of atoms, if you are going to change the of of, uh, molecules, when you change a rotational state, there is no visible light being generated This is, because the wavelengths are so long, you can't see them. Which leads to the question uh, about certain applications of changing these types of energy states in molecules. So last time I talked about this briefly. In microwaves, like food warmed in microwaves, gets hot because of a change in this energy state of its constituent molecules. And remember that food is mainly water, so it's mainly, mainly water happening here. Is it electronic, vibrational, or rotational? Electronic, requiring the most amount of energy. Vibrational, the second most. And rotational, the least. And if you really want to think about that, I mean, we have appliances in our homes that change molecular structure, which is really amazing to actually think about, but if you have like really high energy things, it would take even bigger appliances to sort of change these structures. And that's where we get into things like particle accelerators, where you have massive kilometer long structures of magnets and high energy sources of photons, electrons, subatomic particles. And these subatomic particles are spinning around a, a ring basically, being accelerated to something that is being investigated and smashed into that thing so that all the constituent pieces of matter come out and we can learn about the structure of that. But to, to, to do this, to, to change electronic energies, you need something huge. Think of the size of a particle accelerator. Okay, so I'm going to stop this. And the answer is actually not vibrational, it's rotational. Yeah. So you know, if you want to think about it as to amount of energy required, as human beings, we we have less energy than nature being able to add or remove it from things. So we're kind of stuck here with our microwaves at a rotational energy level. So next, I'm going to show you a five-minute video of an engineer explaining how the microwave works and also reviewing some key concepts that we've done so far in the course. I really like this video. I hope you will like it too.
2: This microwave oven is a truly remarkable feat of engineering. The rapid heating that makes microwaves popular is made possible by power provided from... this vacuum tube. Now, if you picture a vacuum tube at all, it's likely in a radio like this. Inevitably, tiny transistors and microchips replace clunky vacuum tubes, but it's too soon to relegate them to the museum. Microchips can't easily replace tubes for producing power, for example, in heating food. Now, a microwave contains three main components a vacuum tube called a magnetron that generates the energy that heats food, a wave guide hidden in the wall to direct that energy to the food, and a chamber to hold the food and safely contain the microwave radiation. In principle, a microwave oven heats no differently than any other type of heat transfer. At a molecular level, heat is a transfer of energy that results in increased motion of the molecules in the substance. Since we aren't quantum-sized, we observe this increase in motion as a rise in temperature. In a traditional oven or stove, we heat food by placing a pan on a burner, or in the oven where the walls radiate heat, which cooks the outside of the food. The insides cook when heat transfers from the surface of the food to its interior. In contrast, energy from the magnetron penetrates into the food, which means the whole mass of the food can be cooked simultaneously. How does it do this? Well, our food is filled with water, which is positively charged at one end and negative at the other. To give these molecules more energy, we expose it to electromagnetic waves that emanate from the tube. By definition, the waves have the electrical and magnetic fields that change direction rapidly. For this oven, the direction of the fields change 2.45 billion times per second. Water will try to align with the radiation's electric field. The changing field rocks the water molecules back and forth rapidly, and molecular friction from this creates heat as the motion disrupts the hydrogen bonds between neighboring water molecules. Now, you can get an idea of the wavelength of the energy emitted from the magnetron using cheese. You can see on here sections where the cheese is completely melted and other sections where it's completely unheated. The oven's metal walls only reflect waves of a length that fits inside the oven. This standing wave causes hot and cold spots inside the oven. The three-dimensional pattern of waves is difficult to predict, but the principle can be seen by looking at the waves in a single dimension. The peaks and valleys in the wave represent the greatest energy of the wave. Well, the nodes here correspond to the cold spots inside the chamber. If I measure the distance between melted cheese spots, I find about two and a half inches that would be half the wavelength, the distance between nodes, and is pretty close to the actual wavelength of microwave radiation used. Using that wavelength, I can estimate the microwave radiation's frequency. The frequency is related to the wavelength by the speed of light. I get an answer that only has a 4 or 5 percent error, not bad for this primitive measurement. Now, the real engineering in the microwave oven lies in creating the magnetron that generates high-powered radio waves. It's truly an amazing, revolutionary device. The vacuum tube is inside here. These are cooling fins, thin pieces of metal that dissipate the heat as the magnetron operates. The key parts are these two magnets and the vacuum tube. Now, I have another one so you can see the <coughs> inside. You apply a large voltage across both the inner filament and the circular copper outside. This voltage boils electrons off the center filament and they fly toward the circular copper section. The filament is made from tungsten and thorium, tungsten because it can withstand high temperatures and thorium because it's a good source of electrons. The magnets bend these electrons they swing back toward the center filament. We adjust the magnetic strength so that the now-orbiting electrons just brush past the opening of these cavities. Like blowing over a half-filled pop bottle to make it whistle, this creates an oscillating wave, the microwave radiation that heats food. It's simply astonishing that these cavities can be made with high precision, low cost, and incredibly high reliability. I'm Bill Hammack, The Engineer. This video is based on a chapter in the book, Eight Amazing Engineering Stories. The chapter f-
0: and now you know how your microwave works. And actually the magnetron that he's talking about is kind of like a mini version of a particle accelerator, so it's, 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 uh, it's interesting to think about. When you go home, you can put a bunch of cheese in the microwave and look at the exact uh, wavelength of your radiation in the microwave. I'm sure you really want to do that. Um, okay, so it's about... 9.30 right now, and I think we'll take a quick break. I'm not going to go on for very, very much longer after the break, so let's make it 15, 15 minutes or so. So how about till nine, 9.45? 10 minutes. So During the break, um, there's a, there are a lot of questions about the assignment. Uh, there's one question in particular that seems to be giving people some problems, and I'd just like to briefly discuss it here, because you may have some of the same questions, so we can address this uh, here. It's question number five that asks, what is menomerism, and show me some examples using the CIE diagram. So a hint for doing this question would be, if you go back to, I believe it's Lecture 4, I showed you um, a video that went over the CIE diagram, how exactly you read it. And if you actually watch the video in its entirety, it's, uh, the link is, is in your notes, um, he gives some really nice examples of metamers, but for me to explain this further, you have to know what a metamer is. Does anybody remember or feel like volunteering what the definition of a metamer is? Okay, so I, it's so it's kind of, it's not quite that, it's, I, and then, and did I have that, did I say that in my notes? Okay, okay, because I was, I was hoping, because I know that people are kind of, this is the idea that a lot of people are having, that this is what it is, um, and I hope I didn't say it in my notes, and if I did I apologize, because that's not exactly um, what a metamer is, a metamer, I mean that's a good, It it has to do with that kind of thing, so, What a metamer really is, it's not just seeing it differently under different lighting conditions. Think of it like mixing paint. When you mix paint samples, you have, you know, a lot of the time the paint samples will have a number because they're very specific colors. They'll have a number or a name. And if you have, like, paint pigment number 57 or something and it looks like uh, uh, lavender or something like that, It's a very, very specific shade of lavender that you're talking about with a uh, paint number like that. The same thing happens is if you're looking at a color on the chromaticity diagram, any of these colors can be specified by giving the coordinate of the color on this diagram, just meaning the number where you get the point. So if we're looking at a point in green up there, we could give our X coordinate, of like 0.1, or sorry, it's uh, 0.15 in this case, and a y coordinate of 0.45. Any color could be specified with those two x and y numbers, a color that would be really unique, like this number 57, lavender. So the part of the reason this color diagram was developed by the CIE was to talk about how to mix the colors to obtain that exact color. So if we have lavender, lavender 57, and we have a sample of it here, if you were, about, if you were an artist going to mix this and you wanted that color on your wall, which, how would you know which paints to mix? Well, you could probably do it in a couple ways, and a metamer, therefore, is a color that it's this shade of this color so it it looks like one color but there are multiple ways of combining two basic colors to make it so for instance a metamer would have multiple ways to make this one color so for instance you'd have like color one plus color two could give you the final result of that of that metamer the 57 or you could start with two completely different colors, so color three and color four, and if you mix them, both of these guys in equal amounts, you will also get this color. And that relationship, so it's one color, it's a certain color, but can be produced in different ways, essentially. So this diagram gives us essentially the formula on how to produce any given color. So you pick a point. In one of the classes I had given an example of white, it was called D65. It was uh, equal energy white. Um, And depending on, remember that this axis going around from the bottom here all around the perimeter of that shape it's basically a projection it's the same kind of thing as when you're drawing a two-dimensional spectrum so remember we had our spectrum that we or the spectra that we had to draw in the assignment later on for different colors we had intensity on the y-axis and then on the x-axis we had all the different colors going from blue, green, to all the reds, all the colors of the rainbow along this one axis. This diagram is doing kind of the same thing. Instead of it being a straight line on the bottom of your graph, the spectrum, the continuous spectrum, is around the outside of the diagram. So if you are going to make colors, you could start by, let's say, your equal energy white, which is like s- pretty much right in the middle of this. Let's uh, look at that a little further. Oh, that doesn't look really very chromaticity like. But uh, so let's say your your white is here. And this axis gives you the full spectrum of rainbow colors from blue to green to red. Now if you want to take two colors and produce these colors, given this is a predictive diagram, how do you think you might do it? The relationship between the colors here would tell you how to do it so in other words you could connect any line the colors that would make this final color is if you draw a line through it and then connect those so basically if i started here and drew a line up to here this is essentially the formula for for this so if your d65 is the metamer you want to produce one way to produce it was is to follow the prescription of this line, which would say a color one, so this is C1, mixed with color two in equal amounts. Remember this line has a certain length or a certain distance. If you go in the midpoint of the line, that's where you're finding your D65. So mixing C2 plus C1 in equal amounts gives you D65. So drawing any line and having the metamer be at the middle gives you production. So how might you draw like another another way to produce D65? Right, exactly. Because this is symmetric, right? And it's essentially. I mean, it, my diagram doesn't show it too well because it looks not quite like that but you draw the line the other way to give you another example. It's supposed to be equal lengths here and here, but if you do it in reality it will come out to equal length. So what you have is another color, C3 and C4 here, that will give you this midpoint this D65. So right there, this line and this line with two different starting points gives you two ways to make that same color. And when I'm asking for an example, um, I mean obviously tell me what color you're talking about. If you like, you can even give me the coordinate of the color and tell me your two, well you'll have four if you give two examples starting colors. So for instance, this C1 over here kind of corresponds to something up there, right? Like a yellowish green. And with C2 corresponds to something down here, kind of like a blue. So yellowish-green plus blue will give you white. But also, on the other side, if you have like a green over here, C4, and C3, which is red, the green and the red kind of will also give you Yeah, equal equal. This is just talking about for the CIE diagram with a metamer uh, it, it's it's um, I'm not sure not sure exactly what your question. Mhm that will give you any any line on the CIE diagram drawing from any color to any color. If you get the middle of that line, that tells you what color you get when you mix those two colors. But not all of those colors is are metamers, right? And part of the reason why that is is because we've talked about equal lines, equal distance in the line. Like you could draw a line kind of like this, a line kind of like this, and it would intersect here, but it it wouldn't be an equal amount. So, Not everything is a metamer, but I'm just asking really for, first of all, tell me what metamer example you're using, just roughly, using the color legend that you have here, and tell me roughly what two different pairs of colors you're going to use to make Uh, because of the nature of what the definition of a metamer is, a complete example would involve two pairs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can use white, um, just but just tell me sort of where that white is, a good way, because white is such a gigantic area, if you're using white, it's a good idea to specify at least the coordinates, so I can have an idea of where that dot is in this whole big area of white. Uh, sorry, once echoes. Triangle. Right. Yeah. We'd, it's not it's not what we can see as much as we can. um there are probably metamers of those colors but it's not in terms of the colors that we see it's in terms of that triangle was drawn as the colors that we can make so it's like in a printing process um, if you have starting from three primaries red green and blue um, ideally the idea of a primary is you can make all of the colors but we actually can't quite make all of the colors. We can make a limited subsection of those colors. So in reality, it's less than what we imagine. So it's not what we're seeing, it's what we can make. That would be great if you could, co- if, if you could provide the coordinates, because that would make it a lot more concrete, and I can see what it is you're doing. Uh, this is additive color mixture. So remember when we put all the colors, add all the colors together, you get white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it does work. This, the CIE diagrams, they do use it for paint and stuff, and you can also have additive mixtures. But paint isn't always just subtractive mixture; it's usually subtractive mixtures, but... So that doesn't quite answer your question, but this is talking about additive mixtures. Okay. All right. So I know it's a a little bit confusing with that, but, um, you know, and again, I'm explaining it because I'd I'd like you to actually understand it and be able to talk about it as opposed to trivially sort of locate a definition. (coughs) And just a last thing to say about the assignment is when you are writing up your answers, when you're giving me examples, think about how you might explain this stuff to somebody who's never encountered it before or somebody who's never seen it before um, because you know you can, you can give me the laws that I just wrote in my notes but I need to know that you understand them how might you explain this conversationally to a friend who says oh my god I'm really lost in this course what is that that's what I'm kind of looking for All right. So getting back to our lecture, we are going to move on now to pigments. So pigments, and you can see these powders here, we're going to talk a lot about the chemistry of pigments. In a previous lecture, I showed you some examples of pigments in the ancient world. There was Egyptian blue. There was Tyrian purple. um, And it's a really interesting history to track how we've come to understand and produce different color pigments. But first of all, before we understand that, let's define what a pigment is. So a pigment is just a material that absorbs some of the wavelengths of light that are incident upon it, and reflects the other ones. So it's going to absorb certain wavelengths, and obviously if it's absorbed by the pigment, you won't see these wavelengths. So a blue pigment will absorb all of the wavelengths other than blue. A red pigment will absorb all the wavelengths other than red and therefore what is reflected, what's left and reflected into our eyes is the color that we see in this pigment. The reason we went into all of the chemistry and covalent bonds and ionic bonds and different kinds of energies is because to really understand uh, pigments and colors and how to sort of recreate them in a high fidelity, realistic way, part of that has to do with, almost all of that has to do with the molecular bonding in the pigment molecules. So you can think of pigments as small little particles of color and the colors that we see is really um, based on the molecular structure and what's happening with bonds and interactions. Pigments are, you'll hear me talk about colorants, or coloring agent. Pigments are coloring agents that we use in anything that we really need to give a color. So paintings, uh, cosmetics, synthetic fibers, plastics, all kinds of things use pigments. And food, actually. A really good example is food. You will see on the food label often the time it says no synthetic diet, no synthetic uh, products or whatever your natural sort of food coloring from the molecular bonds that are happening in the food is what you see. There are essentially four pigment types that we can think about. So the first way of classifying, this comes from really sort of two ways of classifying them. And if you think about a pigment, you can think about something that is organic, Sorry, sorry, Come on. Something that's either natural, we actually find it in nature, or something that's synthetic or man-made or human-made. So in nature, when I showed uh, sort of those, a slide with the color of Roman dyes used in Roman clothing, they weren't really busy producing synthetic dyes. They had to use, at that time, what was given to them in nature. And got extremely inventive, in fact, using crushed insect shells. Um, parts of animals, etc. So a natural dye, then, or a pig, sorry, a natural pigment type, something is either going to be natural, found in nature, or artificially created. A natural dye would be a mineral, a plant, or an animal source, and you could actually create pigment particles through, for instance, with a mortar and pestle, grinding it up, very, very finely. Synthetic pigments are things that are manufactured or assembled by human beings. They don't exist in nature and they are put together by us through an industrial sort of chemical process. So this is one classification, and the other classification is going to be organic, so that's sort of like living material, or inorganic non-living material. And organic materials are things you see every day, plants, um, animals, etc. Anything that was living that's basically combinations in the molecule. The molecules are combinations of hydrogens, carbons, and nitrogens. Living things. Inorganic pigments come from things like minerals that were never alive, so a rock. For example, a gemstone. You could crush these up and grind these into small pieces and that's in fact how we get dyes like azurite which is a blue sort of uh, mineral. You get malachite which is a nice kind of green stone and you grind it up and you get this sort of potent green dye uh, or pigment. Sorry, I keep saying dye. So I said that there are four pigment types. I've given you two groups. The way we classify them is to say, first delineate between natural and synthetic, and then delineate between organic or inorganic. So the four types, therefore, would be a natural organic pigment, a natural inorganic pigment, a synthetic organic pigment, and a synthetic inorganic. And this is how we're going to classify them and talk about them from now on. And each one, because of how they're manufactured, and the molecules that are bonded in certain ways inside of them, have different behaviors and different kinds of uses. Let's to do a question. So, of these four pigment types that you just saw of the four pigment types, something pigments were most popular in the ancient world, whereas another kind of pigments are currently most popular in our contemporary society in modern times, which is which so. Was it natural-inorganic, natural-organic, synthetic-organic, synthetic-inorganic, natural-organic, synthetic-organic, synthetic, organic, synthetic, inorganic, natural organic, synthetic, synthetic organic, wow, these are tongue twisters. Uh, natural-organic, synthetic-inorganic, or synthetic-inorganic, and sort of synthetic-organic. So ancient times versus modern times. Everybody's got everything in for now? Okay. I'm closing this off now. And, oops, you are correct. Um, And this shouldn't really come as as much of a surprise. Uh, In the ancient world, natural organic pigments were more popular, whereas now synthetic inorganic pigments Are much more popular for a variety of reasons, including cost and variety, which we'll cover in a second. But we will be talking later on—not this lecture, but in lectures to come—about all the different kinds of pigments, especially about those that were used in some of the most beautiful forms of art, from ancient civilizations to, uh, you know, painting masters like Rembrandt, etc. We'll be talking about the pigments that they used, and the binding agents that they used to take these pigment molecules, or little sort of colorant particles, and stick them together. And you'll recall that the first synthetic pigment, and we talked about pigments in a previous, well, we talked about colors in a previous lecture, first synthetic pigment was from the ancient Egyptians, it was Egyptian blue. So we'll, we'll go into more of this later. So what, what do these things look like? We've got the four types here, so you have natural organic, natural inorganic, synthetic organic, synthetic inorganic. So some common examples of each of these types of pigment. Natural organic pigment. This is a picture of... Tyrian purple. So Tyrian, is called Tyrian purple because it was from Tyre in Lebanon and um, it was used in a lot of royalty's clothing, especially in Roman times. In um, sort of, you think of the famous emperor's uh, robes kind of thing, in, in being in purple. It was very, very expensive, which is why it could only be really used by royalty, which is why we associate often royalty with the color purple, and it's really just a uh, ground up sort of mollusks. And it actually took 10 to 12,000 of these ground up shells to create like one adult sized Roman dress or Roman toga of, of Tyrian purple. So that's natural organic, natural inorganic. These are shades that are kind of like muted browns. These are shades that come from nature, um, sort of from earth. Th- these shades, like for instance, if you're a painter and you, there is a common pigment which you'll buy in your paints called burnt sienna, burnt sienna would be an example of a natural inorganic um, d- uh, pigment. And they're inorganic because they come mainly from um, oxides, basically, from, from different kinds of chemical molecular bondings, which are not hydrogen, carbon and uh, nitrogen. So synthetic? this I don't know if you can actually read it from where you're sitting, but it says: "Alzarin crimson, alizarin crimson." So alizarin, there are a number of types of alizarin dyes and they create crimsons and oranges and kind of yellows. Um, this is a synthetically produced man-made dye, but it is from organic material, so it is from material that was once living or found in nature. This here is an example of a synthetic inorganic dye. And this particular dye has a very long and difficult to spell name. We'll be talking about these types of dyes, sorry, these types of pigments as we go on in the course. They're called phallocyanine blue, this one. So we've already said that in the modern world, it's easiest for us to have synthetic inorganic pigments. So these are the type of pigments that we will mass produce, and there are a number of, of reasons for that. 80% uh, of pigments that we use today are synthetic inorganic pigments, and they're all manufactured because they are, for number one, you know, they're cheaper, it's easier to produce in mass scales in large industrial processes. And given that this is synthetic, there's a wider variety of colors that we can produce from synthetic materials. If you think of, um, they showed you day glow dyes in one of the videos that I showed before. If you think of a hot neon pink or... These colors, typically, we don't see them very much in nature. So we have the ability to combine sort of unnatural things and get a wide, wider spectrum of colors we can produce. We can actually... Given our knowledge now of chemistry and physics, we can engineer the production of synthetic pigments so that the colors are brighter and more durable. And that comes, I mean, very carefully from repeated experiment and chemists sort of engineering the properties of compositions of pigments. So which molecules are put together and how they bond. So we get these nicer brighter colors that are also more permanent. Part of the problem with the natural organic dyes, if you ever try and and dye something or dye your hair or with henna or something, you'll see that it's not very permanent. It doesn't last a long time. It kind of fades with time. Even if you have something as simple as in your kitchen, beets. Beets tend to turn your hands like a dark magenta but that fades over time it's not a permanent source of dye so synthetic colors stay around longer and they're also more resistant to fading for a number of reasons when you think about fading with colors there's not just one cause of fading there's several causes one of those being exposure to light and that is often if you are in a gallery, they'll say no flash photography. Um, and obviously, they won't put the Mona Lisa like right in the sun. They're not going to put paintings in the sun because the exposure to light actually fades the pigment. There's also other weathering effects. For instance, if you spilled, let's say, something acidic on a painting, that would pretty much destroy it so there's a number of effects but they're more resistant to any of these effects uh, with synthetic pigments i've put a, a link here to the handprint site which i mentioned once before it is a great site for artists it's a great site to learn about color and how different colors are made so if you want more information about the development of the whole synthetic inorganic pigment industry, which is a huge, massive, lucrative industry, take a look uh, here. Okay. So let's get into how we describe pigments. In our very first lecture, we described properties of light and properties of color. So now we're going to describe properties of pigments. Light and color both had conveniently three main properties each that we were using to describe them. Pigments have six that we're going to talk about. And here are each of these six properties. So color appearance is the first one. That's kind of similar to when we talked about colors, we talked about hue, the color you actually see. And that has to do with... Molecular bonding and how the molecules are organized and stay together in the molecules of the pigmented uh, structure. The other thing is particle size of the pigment. You can have, when I showed pictures of those very rich, saturated pigments which were in powdered form, well, the depending on how much you sort of would grind something in a mortar or pestle, or in this day and age, you do it with machines, but the particle size of different pigments can be different. And that has a lot of complications and causes a lot of of, um, different issues that we'll talk about. Light fastness, that's to do with the idea of being in the gallery, as I mentioned before. You don't basically put things that you want to preserve the pigments and colors in in direct sunlight a lot of the time. So light fastness is the ability of a pigment to resist fading because of exposure to light. Tinting strength is kind of what it sounds like. It's it's how strong, how potent the pigment is. How intense that color is. And transparency. we had tinting strength with is what it sounds like. Transparency is not what it sounds like in the case of pigments. Transparency, we usually think of as a piece of glass. We think of seeing through something. It's therefore transparent. Transparency in the case of pigments means something different. Transparency in this case means, let's say you had piece of paper and you colored different areas of paper the transparency with respect to pigment is how much white is showing through or how much of the background color is showing through from your uh, original pigment so if you tried to dye something and you tried to dye a white cloth purple and you had the little globs of purple um, and pieces of white all over the place that would be a high transparency Finally, um, like one of these main six is specific gravity. And specific gravity in this case simply means how something falls or the specific gravity it has with respect to water. Because a lot of the time we're suspending pigments, these particles in water or water soluble mixtures. So the specific gravity is a measure of whether the pigment particles are likely to kind of float and say suspended in the water or whether they're likely to sink to the bottom. You can also talk opa- about opacity, but that's kind of like the flip side of transparency, right? Tran- opacity is how sort of thick, how much a black or white, surface is hidden by the pigment, so it's like hiding ability. And this has to do with the refractive index, so how it bends light of each of these pigment particles. So let's talk very, uh, although I just kind of talked about most of those particles, let's talk in a little more detail about each of these particles. Not surprisingly, if you're talking about pigment, the most important thing is the color. So color appearance is our most important attribute of a pigment. It's the color that you see. Uh, It has to do with both chemical bonding and the energy states, either electronic, rotational, or vibrational, of the molecule that we're dealing with. An example of a color appearance, color appearance of blue, of uh, an inorganic pigment, is ultramarine, ultramarine blue. It's like this dark sort of a blue. It's found naturally and it's manufactured through another chemical process, and this is the chemical formula right here. You can actually take a look again on the handprint site at a guide to watercolor pigments, which was organized by color appearance. So it has a whole list of colors by color appearance. Okay. So when we mix pigment in a paint, if you mix color appearances, then you will get slightly different colors. and that has to do with what we talked about first at the beginning of the course, and as you pointed out, like subtractive mixing. So let us let us hear the story of blue, which is hard to make and difficult to find in nature. This is about six minutes, sorry, seven minutes.
1: Blue has always been uh, a sort of problem for artists in a way because there are not a great many uh, natural materials that are available uh, that are blue in color and serve as pigments. There is uh, a very, uh, very fine and precious wood which is available from the semi-precious stone for lapis lazuli that yields a pigment called Ultramarine. A particularly striking yeah, this example of the use of natural Ultramarine, Ultramarine can be seen in this picture by, by Sassifurato, who was a Roman school painter in the 17th century and it shows the Virgin in prayer uh, and her uh, uh, blue drapery uh, is painted uh, in the most uh, fantastic quality uh, natural art from uh, really uh, shows uh, cool you the colour quality of this wonderful equipment. Before the 19th okay. century there was only one mm-hmm. known source of lapis in the world yeah. and it's in mm-hmm. a place that's okay. called Shah, which is mm-hmm. in what's now northeast Afghanistan and there were some and famous mm-hmm. mines there, a place called Saar Issam. And all yeah, the lapis yeah. lazuli that was used across the world from ancient times came from that one single source. It was the only place that it occurred. Mm. Mm. You can't just take lapis lazuli, however good the quality of the colour, and just grind it up and mix it with a paint medium to make a very satisfactory pigment. You actually have to extract the pigment from uh, the mixture of minerals that constitute lapis lazuli. And the discovery of that process of extraction uh, came into being in the 12th century
3: they did was that they used um, um, wax, wax and mastic and, and pine tur- turpentine, and and ground it together, ground and ground then washed them it with lime, and, and then, then you ended up, and up and with the grades of the, um, of of the, the lazurite, le- le- which, which is the blue portion of the stone. And so and that is um, one of the highest quality examples. And as the extraction process went on, the quality would go, would go down, down and um, to a a Mm mid-blue and then finally to what is called the ultramarine ash which is a Mm -hmm. much lower grade Mm blue.
1: There were alternatives Uh, to Uh, Uh, ultramarine. The most important one for early pictures is Mm -hmm. another mineral one called azurite. Azurite right, occurs in quite a number of European locations, uh, particularly in, in southern France, in Germany, yeah. and in Hungary. And it was used yeah. in tempera yeah. and it was used in oil. So it was really quite an important material. The great disadvantage of azurite, in comparison, to yeah. is that it doesn't have the wonderful pure blue yeah. uh, colour quality yeah. that has, and particularly when you mix it with a paint medium. It often becomes mm-hmm. quite greenish mm-hmm. in tone, and that's not a very desirable characteristic of the There was a very well, interesting discovery in at the beginning of the 18th century mm-hmm. uh, when mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. an alchemist mm-hmm. who was called De Pell, who was a Swiss mm-hmm. colour maker mm-hmm. uh, working mm-hmm. Berlin, in Berlin, discovered mm-hmm. quite by chance mm-hmm. a new blue pigment mm-hmm. called Prussian mm-hmm. blue. And, uh, and uh, it was uh, a chance I'm discovery. He was in fact in trying to make uh, uh, a red pigment, and um, some of the, and the materials he was using to manufacture that red pigment were contaminated. And he ended up, instead of with this red pigment, this blue pigment, which is a compound called uh, ferric ferrocyanide. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to yeah, make that sort of material uh, intentionally. It was a completely chance discovery. But its importance was that this was really the first synthetic pigment in a modern sense, and it came to be manufactured in quite large quantities as an artist pigment. So it really started the chemical revolution in creating new pigments for artists to use. Before the early 19th century, there were no methods of chemical analysis in existence that were able to show uh, the correct chemical composition of something so complex as natural art Uh, But uh, at that time, particularly what was called quantitative uh, chemical analysis began to appear. And the work of two French chemists enabled natural artraming to be uh, analysed. And that really led to the discovery of the the artificial form of the pigment. Well, it took a very long time
3: for them to find out the true nature of uh, just of ultramarine. Mm. It's a complex Mm. sulfur-containing sodium Mm. and uh, Mm. silicate. And it wasn't until Mm. 1806 Mm. that they managed to actually Mm. find out exactly what the structure was. Mm. And then it was another 20 years before they managed to produce um, what is the the synthetic of Ultramarine, mm. which is a very, very intense mm. blue. Mm. So that was finally done in 1826, mm. and after that time, mm. very quickly, mm. they actually developed large mm. quantities well.
1: both in France and in uh, Germany. French Ultramarine was a fantastic kind of discovery. Uh, it was uh, published as a method um, of um, manufacture in 1828, and um, so successful was this, that by the 1830s, there were already yeah, factories yeah. set up to manufacture um uh, in large quantities and it became a very important pigment not just for penantine but for all kinds cl- of colouring purposes. We have in the National Gallery collection a very large, and picture, large picture by George Surra called the Bathers, and uh, Sear made a number of small sketches as preliminary design to this picture. And one of the pigments he used very widely, both in the series of sketches and in the, the main picture itself was French. 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 So
0: that tells us a little bit about the continuing story of blue. Now we'll talk about particle size. The particle size of those powdered pigment particles that you see, that, I mean, and this really affects the quality of the color generated quite a lot. So particle size, um, typically, if you're thinking of pigment particles, we talked about light and we talked about visual light specifically being in that 400 to 700 nanometer range. For one of those individual particles of a pigment that you saw in the video in those jars typical particle size in that would be about 50 nanometers to hundred thousand nanometers. That's quite a variation. So you have very small and very large particles. And if you compare this then to the size of a single water molecule, which is about 0.3 nanometers, you see that this range is much greater, so the particles don't in fact break down, and they don't form bonds with water. So the average particle size is so much larger, I mean look at 50 to 100,000 compared to 0.3, that the interaction with the water doesn't happen. they, They don't mix with the water, essentially, and they don't form bonds with the water molecules. So when you actually have a pigment and you have it suspended in some sort of solution, water. um, The particles truly are suspended. They basically bounce around. And your color and your color distribution is from this sort of bumping, bouncing around of uh, pigment particles in the medium. And you can see that very clearly in things like uh, dyeing of, even dyeing of hair And it's really popular now to have different, lots, like blues and pinks and greens and hair color. But you can see there's not uniform coverage. Certain areas are a little bit blobbier than others. And that has to do sometimes with particle size. So we can use, another interesting reason is because of this bumping around. That's why we can keep using paint on a surface because what you're doing when you're slathering paint sort of on the surface repeatedly is simply bumping around those pigment molecules so that they're, they're redistributed Whoops. in a certain way. And this is why we can paint over and over and over and over a certain canvas. So particle size with respect to total surface area, you can change the size of the particle and this will change the surface area of exposure to that particle. Right? So if the particle is smaller, actually the surface area exposure increases. It's kind of counterintuitive, but this diagram is showing you a particle size. So think of this as a crystal. It's a crystal particle. It's cubic. It's a, it's a crystal lattice. Um, so it's one actual particle, and think of it as a cube. So it has six faces, it's a three-dimensional cube, it's just drawn front on. So the width of this particle is one. If you have one of these particles, the surface area that it distributes to is six. You make the particles smaller and smaller, and the surface area is eighteen, and then you make them really small, and the surface area here that it distributes to is fifty-four. Um, This is a little bit hard to understand at the moment. I will be talking about it more next time, but what is key to remember is that particle size really impacts upon the surface area of of exposure to that pigment, and the relationship is such that if you have a total… particle size, if you decrease the particle size by some factor X, that will have the effect of increasing the surface area by the same factor X. Again, do not worry if this doesn't make a lot of sense now, we'll show some examples and it will make a little bit more sense later on. So if we change this total surface area that the pigment influences or is exposed to, we change the also the perceived properties of the pigment. So in general terms, if you have a really really small particle, it tends to be stronger. And if the particle size of pigment decreases, we find a number of trends. So the following trends, um, for example, this is in case of watercolors, here is what we find as we decrease this pigment size thereby increasing surface area so the tinting strength that's one of our properties of pigments the tinting strength increases you get a much more intense color you have higher staining power again which is kind of like tinting strength basically the empty spaces bet- uh sorry more intense color, and so I missed the more transparent one, but remember what we described transparent as meaning in terms of pigments. doesn't mean seeing through, it means seeing areas of not color, non-colored things. So the transparency, if you have smaller and smaller particle size, that kind of makes sense, right? The areas of blotches where those pigments don't cover increases transparency becomes a lot higher. You have less light fastness. So with smaller, smaller particles, it's actually better because if you expose your surface or whatever it is the pigment is coloring to light, it'll be less likely to fade when you have that really finely ground small particle size. And also, um, this is kind of interesting because it may not be um, what you think, but lower permanence, we have the lower, remember a permanence of a color is how long it lasts, how long the dye lasts. So if you have smaller particle size, you basically have resistance to wear and tear being much weaker. It will, it will be uh, sort of fading much quicker. Much more so you can think of that as being small particle sizes, they'll be more affected by wear and tear from the elements. Let's talk about for a moment distribution of particle sizes. With any given pigment, when you have like those jars that were shown in the video, um, they're not all going to be exactly the same size. I mean, people try and make pigments of particles that are approximately the same size, but there is a distribution, a range of sizes. And this affects how well the color would take to whatever it is you're trying to color. So a typical distribution of particle sizes in a given pigment looks something like this. It's a spectrum. So this is giving you particle diameter on the x-axis, how, how big they are. And on the y-axis, this is giving you the number of particles in a sample of pigment particles. So you can see, you know, you have, it's kind of like a, a, a Gaussian distribution. You'd have like a, little, a, little t- a few particles that are really, really small and a few particles that are really, really large, with most of them being somewhere in the middle. When you have this distribution like this, the more varied the distribution, the l- more variation in sizes of the particles, um, basically the more transparent the colorant will be. So you want the size to be uniform because if the sizes are consistent and not widely distributed, you get more opacity, you get more hiding power in this kind of So I've shown the graph, and the graph is just showing you this this particular pigment that I'm showing you a sample of here is titanium dioxide, which is white, white paint. So this is your typical particle distribution for white paint. And just remember that with certain sizes, the particles can clump together, and that's not a good thing because you will not get an even distribution of your your color if you have clumping aggregate particles. And here's some more examples. Uh, for scale, here's a water molecule at zero 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 three micrometers, the little u with the dash is a micrometer. And that's a more complex molecule, a glucose molecule. So that's a simple molecule, a more complex molecule. That gives you an idea of the size. And here are some common pigment-type sizes. Uh, Going on the scales to of micrometers. So we've got black, we have white, uh, sorry, iron, zinc white, iron blue. We'll talk about cadmium reds and cadmium oranges quite a bit. We'll talk about um, cobalt blue, all the different kinds of blue, the oxides, the synthetic inorganics. Um, but typically. It's no surprise that as we're getting more and more uh, skilled in our manufacturing of pigments and refining the processes better, we have smaller and smaller and smaller particle sizes. So the synthetics, a lot of the time, have smaller particle sizes than the traditional dyes, or sorry, pigments that we used um, in older, both ancient and uh, sort of 17th, 18th, 19th century times. They were very coarse. All right, time for a question then. So changing the size of a pigment particle can affect which quality of, which are the six qualities of the material that it's being used to color? Would it be the weight of the material, the reactivity on the chemical level of the material, the transparency? or the heat of the material. seconds. So it is indeed the transparency, which was the transparency, the amount of non-colored showing through the colored. So smaller particle sizes of evenly distri- distributed particle sizes make something less transparent. So let's talk quickly then about fastness of pigments. This is a fairly intuitive one. It's the ability of a pigment to withstand exposure to light, um, and to resist fading in the presence of sort of direct incident light. Um, organic pigments, I gave the example of things like beets, but beets I'm not talking about anymore in this, but organic pigments, things that are found in nature and easily accessible tend to fade very, very quickly in exposure to light. So their light fastness is a very low level. Whereas the synthetic pigments that we now know how to manufacture today uh, are a lot more light fast. You can see an art object in a gallery now and take flash photography of it and not really have to worry about it painting, whereas fading, whereas an older painting, you don't want to take any flash photography of that to, in case you fade or damage the pigment. So over time, eventually, all organic pigments tend to wash out and fade the more and more they're exposed to light. So synthetic inorganic pigments, again, this stands to reason these are the most permanent light-resistant, most light-fast pigments. There are um, just like we had ways to co- test for color blindness and to test for a number of things. There are sort of standardized ways to test for the light fastness of a pigment, and this is a particular test specifically called um, the blue sort of the blue wool test. Basically, it's it's uh, it's a, it's testing for the light fastness. So it's basically looking comparing how things react against a number of swatches, of wool swatches. You can read about this, but it's basically compared on levels of 1 to 10 to see how true or how saturated something is with respect to these samples. Uh, You can actually read more about this here, or you can do your own light fastness test with your own paints, other than leaving them out in the sun and seeing what happens. That might take a long time. There's other ways to do it. Um, this last link is just a nice, this is a manufacturer's specification about light fastness and light fastness of some of the different pigments that they offer. It's an interesting to, thing to look at. So quickly, wha- what's the difference between light fastness versus permanence? Remember, light fastness is just how something may fade with light. Permanence is how it may fade completely uh, with any sort of a cause. So there could be many causes. There could be simple weathering, simple uh, you know exposure to the elements. There could be chemicals spilled on the painting or whatever it is, acid spaces. And we're going to get into the chemistry of acids and bases and see why all of this is important for color, um, production and also for especially for with respect to dyeing. So permanence is the ability of a pigment to last through the ages to withstand heat, water, humidity, acidity, mold, whatever you throw at it. And uh, it's not a surprise that this is also determined by the chemical structure and the molecular, molecular bonds happening in the pigment type. Tinting strength. Tinting strength is uh, quite straightforward. It's just how good it is at coloring the color a certain color. It's given a, in one to ten ratio, typically. And I did mention on the first one of the first slides this strange phallocyanine th- blue. Uh, this is an interesting dye which we will go into a lot more next time, but tinting strength, for instance, of different blues, they were just talking about the story of blue. Well, it turns out that this synthetic phallo, th- phallo blue, it's very kind of weird to pronounce, but the full name is phallocyanine blue, is 40 times larger. In terms of pigment tinting strength, than that ultramarine blue that you just saw, when you had the painting of the Virgin Mary from the 17th century. So our synthetic ballo blue is 40 times stronger than ultramarine blue, two times stronger than the Prussian blue, which was that 1800s painting of the Duchess sort of sitting that you saw. So, of course, tinting strength of a pigment also clearly influences which color dominates. So if you have a painting and you have a really high tinting strength blue, the blue will dominate the painting and it will kind of jump out at you because it's so vibrant. Uh, Just in terms of things that you'll hear synonyms, things that mean uh, tinting strength, it's also called coloring power, staining power or mixing strength and here is an example tinting strength tests this is cobalt blue in different amounts of water and you can see the tinting strength um, is varied with each of these so all of this I've basically said what's on the slide Uh, you can take a look again at the handprint site to see how different tinting strengths are measured just one last point to make with tinting strength is that the synthetic pigments tend to have more tinting strength than natural pigments transparency we talked about transparency already And we said that this is not what we see, not what we normally call transparency, it's not transparency of glass or seeing through material. It has to do with seeing bits of it, bits of white or bits of black or bits of whatever colour it's not being um, imprinted with. So transparency of a pigment depends both on the particle size, as you just answered in the question, and on the thickness of the layer of the pigment applied. In painting, you often have multiple layers of paint upon paint. In dyeing, you also have multiple processes of dyeing, where you go through different stages to get the outcome of a final color that you want by dyeing different, sort of slightly different colors. So how much pigment there is, how much of that powder is actually on the substance, um, does have an effect on the transparency. The more pigment you have, on a substance, the less transparent it is. Opacity is the uh, sort of converse of transparency, this is hiding power. So if you remember one of those slides in the earlier lecture showed a Roman paint, a Roman mummy um, under different kinds of light, visible light, x-rays, UV light, and this actually had the ability of unhiding sort of earlier layers of paint and earlier parts of black and white. Hiding power is defined as the ability of the pigment to hide something, a pattern, a black or white pattern, on a surface that's underneath it. So obviously more transparent pigments, where you see more of the original colors, have less opacity and higher tinting strength and the opaque pigments tend to be larger in size larger in terms of particles and they scatter the light differently they have much more scattering of light so you get essentially more light scattered off of the surfaces and a more clear image of the color that you are seeing. okay this i have covered several times What we mean by transparency, not through, just different kinds of seeing the underlying surface through the pigment mold. Uh, This discusses transparency a little more if you want to take a look at that. And specific gravity is kind of an interesting one, interesting one especially for painters. It's the weight in water. It's simply saying, Will the pigment molecules, will the pigment particles be suspended? Or will they sink to the bottom? Water has, we define it as having a specific gravity of 1 and can compare all of the other specific gravities of pigment particles to it. So pigments, for instance, that have a specific gravity of less than water or less than 1 will be suspended. They are lighter than the water. Pigments with a specific gravity of greater than one, or greater than water, will sink to the bottom. And these are known, um, artists known as sedimentary pigments. And you may have even experienced this, when you have a a glass to sort of, between mixing, wash off the colors, you'll see some paint, more than others, tends to stick at the bottom of the mixing glass, or can, or whatever you're using. This is a sedimentary pigment because of the size. Okay. And here is a quick example of all of the different particle sizes, and spe- with respect to the specific gravity, the y-axis is specific gravity, going upwards, water is at one here, here are the particle size, and here are basically an arrangement of some different pigments with their specific gravity. So, with the the sinking we have high specific gravity. Remember, it's greater than one, it's greater than water, it'll sink. Or, as this relationship shows, you could have just a really, really high particle size, which would also make it sink. Okay. So this shows you your resulting sedimentary pigments, and that is where we will leave off for today. So have a good weekend, good luck on the assignment, I will be in my office uh, after the class.